y'all rolling once again. I am Lee Grant, and we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. Unfortunately, Brother Kevin will not be joining us today, and for the next few episodes, I'll be hosting solo. Uh, Kevin has unfortunately experienced a death in the family. His grandmother has passed away, and he is attending to some of those familial issues that need to be navigated in the event that a family member passes. We've all experienced that. So, Kevin, I know you're listening, brother. Our prayers are with you. We love you. Everyone out there in audience land, please keep Kevin in your prayers. Uh, Please continue to think about him and his family as they navigate this time of loss in their lives. We look forward to having Kevin back, and he will be back with us shortly. Today, though, we will be joined, or rather I should say I will be joined, unless I'm using the royal we, by Brother Daniel Rogers. Uh, Daniel has been on with us before. We discussed the uh, preterist view of eschatology in a previous podcast, and Daniel is joining us for another conversation today. Daniel, welcome back, brother. Well, man, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here again. Man, we're really glad to have you back. Um, Those episodes that we did were extremely interesting, and I've been following you on Facebook since then. After that episode, we friended each other. I uh, got to know you, and I've kind of been following you a little bit more. I have been uh, reading the articles that you post on your website, labornotinvain.com, and I really like the content that you put out there. And it seems like since the first of the year, you've become a little more pointed in some of your commentary on some of these (laughs) religious issues and on some of these doctrinal matters that uh, so many people that navigate these waters that you've gone through and that I've gone through and that Kevin has gone through seem to avoid. We tend to not get as deep into the weeds on some of those issues or we're not, we tend to not be as open on some of those issues as we are on others just simply because we're afraid of the blowback that may come up. And brother, let me tell you, you have faced some serious blowback. It has been really hard for me to remain civil on some of the threads that have come up on social media. And I find myself uh, easing back into that easy pattern of snark that I used to engage in so often. I'm trying to be better about it, but man, it can be difficult. There's There's been a lot of vitriol sent your way over the last few weeks based on some of those articles that you've written. Yeah, there has. Everything, you know, uh, calling into question my writings because of my age, saying I'm a little wet behind the ears and all that kind of stuff. And then just people asking me if I even read the Bible, uh, you know. So, Oh, well, and I'm, I'm thinking about sending you a copy of the Bible because it's obvious from your articles. You just you just don't read it, you know. I mean, well, well, man, listen, I've got a Bible. It's right here. Hang on. It's a uh, it's a new international version, but that's the only Bible I've got. <laughs> You mean, you mean the non-inspired version? <laughs> Kevin said that in one episode, and that's the first time I had ever heard that, and I about lost it. Oh, man. But, but man, in, in all seriousness, though, one of the things that, that Kevin appreciated about you whenever he initially was saying, hey, we need to have uh, my buddy Daniel on, is that you have experienced a paradigm shift in a very similar way that Kevin and I have. And you've gone through a lot of the same stuff that I have gone through. You've gone a lot, gone through a lot of the same stuff that Kevin has gone through. And the paths that we have taken on our spiritual journey and our spiritual formation, there, there's a lot of overlap there. And you've really begun writing more in earnest on your website about some of those things, some of those specific doctrinal points that you have changed your opinion on. In your most recent article, and I'm going to link to that in the show notes. I was reading that this morning before before we went to church. And I really thought it was is one of the best articles you put out there. And to our audience, Daniel's material is very, very, very good. 
it's excellent. Even if you find yourself disagreeing with what he has to say, if you approach his content with an open mind and you really examine it and look, you're going to see that this is a fellow who is really weighing things and he's just putting it out there where he lands. And he does so in a very easy to follow manner, but also in a very thorough manner. So I encourage you to check out his stuff on his website, but this article you wrote about the difference between convictions and opinion. And in other articles that you've written, you've stated that you didn't really always see things the way that you see them now. You know, your worldview has changed. And that's really kind of what we're going to talk about today is how our paradigms tend to shift and our convictions can tend to, um, oh, what's the word? I don't want to say drift, but for lack of a better term, our convictions can evolve over time. So what was that process like for you? Yeah, man. So, so the big thing for me that changed obviously was eschatology, but, but at the end of the day, eschatology is just an opinion. The real change that took place was something that was going on simultaneous. That's, that's been sort of a struggle of mine since I was in middle school. And that is, you know, how I view the nature of God, because when you're a kid in school, maybe you weren't like this, but I was, I was raised in the church of Christ. And so like every person in my class, except for literally one other guy uh, that was in Bible study with me was going to hell, every single one of them. So, so when they shared with me about their conversion experiences, when they invited me to go to uh, Easter egg hunts that they're denominational churches or their VBS (laughs) wasn't allowed. In fact, uh, my parents would use my friendships at school to, you know, invite y'all come over and hang out and let the kids play, you know? And uh, while me and my friend would be playing, you know, WWE SmackDown in the other room, jumping off the top bunk and stuff like that. uh, My parents were getting people to do little Bible studies. And so as I got older, I didn't realize this until recently all of my friends stopped coming over and I didn't understand it until recently that, Oh wow. They were tired of getting preached at the whole time they were over at the house. (laughs) And so uh, the, and so the biggest, the thing that made me really go, wait a minute, there's, there's other Christians out there besides my little uh, you know, my little corner of the world was my English teacher in college because here's someone who was, wonderful Christian, loved God with all of her heart, talked about the Bible and Jesus and theology and stuff just constantly and was always just a wonderful mentor to uh, other fellow students of mine and just so patient and kind and loving. You just, you could just tell, right? Yeah. But the problem was she was Catholic. Oh, oh, well, that's a deal breaker right there. Yeah. Well, it was, it was. And I just could not understand for the life of me, why would God send her to an eternal conscious torture chamber, you know? Yeah. Because yeah, of it, her, yeah. Cause of her tradition. Right. Well, and I think that that's, I can definitely relate to that. That's really similar to, in, in a lot of ways to the paradigm that I grew up in because, you know, I didn't grow up within the churches of Christ. I, I guess I could say I married into it later, but Growing up as a oneness Pentecostal, that's one of the things, and I, I mentioned this in the solo episode I did a while back, 
we were all under that banner. Whenever I was still flying that banner, we were all united under our perspective of the Godhead and that idea of Jesus only and Jesus just being, you know, or, or rather the father just being a modality into which Jesus operated, the son being a modality and the Holy Spirit being a modality. That's why it's also called modalism. But, you know, it's Jesus only. Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And from our perspective, if you believed in the oneness of the Godhead and you baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins, well, then you were a Christian. But if you didn't do those things or if you didn't believe those things, well, then you weren't a real Christian and your soul wow. wasn't truly saved. So, you know, that that whole philosophy, it's it's extremely familiar to me because I grew up in, in much the same way that you did and that so many people within the churches of Christ grow up as well. And really, whenever you think about it within Christendom, that's a really more common philosophy than a lot of people really give it credit for. Um, and especially within Protestantism, wherever you consider someone, even if you're open-minded and egalitarian enough, or rather I should say ecumenical enough to extend fellowship to other people within other Protestant circles, those dirty, filthy Catholics over there, well, they're just lost altogether. Right, so, yeah. Yeah, so the fact that you're seeing Jesus expressed in the life of this this woman who you know, exemplifies what it means to be a Christ follower. I can see how that could be a real earth shaking moment for someone who was raised like you are and who was raised like I was. Yeah, it was difficult. And for several years, um, I could not align my heart with my head because my head said, well, everything that I've been taught is right. Everything I've been taught is the truth. And I honestly thought there's not a Bible question you could ask me that I probably couldn't answer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or at least, or at least go to my family and get the right answer, you know? Yeah. And so until I had an opportunity to change my mind and really be challenged and in, in something that I believed, um, I, I couldn't even conceive the possibility of being wrong until I felt that, you know, change personally. And so changing my opinion on eschatology is what gave me permission to start pursuing some of those doubts that I had about my convictions about who was in and who is out. So, well, and those questions about who is in and who is out, it's, it's such a wild proposition now on this side of it, looking back, yeah. you know, we, we get so concerned about who is in and who is out. And we make that determination on who is in and who is out based on their measure of ritualistic perfection that we, um, visualize through our particular traditional and interpretive lens and framework, you know, within the one, within the oneness Pentecostal, uh, group that I grew up with that lens and who was in was, who was out was based on your opinion of who Jesus was. And, you know, the, basically your viewpoint of the Godhead and within the one cup churches of Christ, your view on who is in and who was out was based on, you know, whether or not the ritual of communion was observed in the right way with one loaf and one cup on the first day of the week, in addition to many, many others. And that whole perspective and that whole framework, it's so damaging, but you don't see it when you're in the middle of it. Because That's you right. grow up with this certitude, you grow up with this certainty, you are raised to think, and, and you really don't think this, but looking back, it's it's almost like, wow, I won the cosmic lottery. How fortunate of me to be born into a family yes. you know, that knows the truth and that understands all of the right things in all the right ways and practices all the right things. So whenever you have something that 
drives a wedge into that door and it begins to open that door where you can begin to think a little more rationally about some things in your case, eschatology. And you right. see things in, in a way that you never considered it before. And you find a new way to make sense of things that were really hard to understand. Well, it makes it easier to entertain the idea. Well, if I was wrong about this, well, what else could I be wrong about? Exactly. And more importantly, if I was wrong about this, who am I to judge anyone else for being wrong? Oh, <laughs> yeah, <know>? exactly. <laughs> it's it, it. We tend to think, man, I've got all this figured out and all you other folks, y'all are just loud and wrong. I got to get you all to think like me. And yeah. that just, that doesn't lend itself to, to good communication or to pursue truth. So eschatology was the thing that really got you to start thinking in a more, oh, what do I want to say? I mean, I'll say a more Berean way, a more fair-minded way, but your experience with your college professor, was that one of those additional dominoes that fell? How did that, what was that like coming to terms with the idea? Well, maybe she's not going to be sent to yeah. a devil's hell to be tortured for all eternity. Maybe, you know, maybe she's in like what led you down that road? Yeah. So I always, when I met her and when I had that experience with her, you know, just, just watching her go, I mean, it was just incredible, uh, just how Christ-like of a person that she was, um, you know, I couldn't reconcile that. I just had that, it was always eaten at me, but it wasn't really until, uh, I started studying that I, that I allowed myself the possibility of being wrong, that I began to, you know, see if accepting her into God's family as if it's my role, <laughs> but accepting her into God's family, you know, was even possible. But probably the thing that made me on a, I guess, a subconscious level already accept her into God's family was uh, the patron saint that she suggested to me. <laughs> the patron uh, saint. Oh man, you're really going yeah. down the rabbit hole now. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, I've never had a patron saint still don't. Uh, but if I had to have one, it'd probably be this guy. Uh, she said, it sounds like, uh, you would make a really good Maximilian Colby. And for those of you who don't know, I wrote a little, little short sketch, biographical sketch of him on my website, but Maximilian Colby was this, uh, was this anti, a Nazi Franciscan friar <laughs> uh, living in Europe and uh, the Nazis got him and they put him into Auschwitz. And uh, just a few months with him getting arrested, um, someone escaped, someone tried to escape. And so to punish the entire camp, they were going to take 10 men and put them in an underground bunker. And this guy's a Catholic priest, right? And one of the guys yelled out, my wife, my children. And uh, Colby st stood up and said, Hey, if it's okay, I'll die in his place. I mean, is God really going to send somebody to eternal conscious torment for that? I mean, a yeah. guy like that, I just could not reconcile. I could not reconcile that. And when you look at others uh, throughout history, like Mother Teresa, you know, who've made similar, you know, maybe not life or death sacrifices, but entire life committed to, to, uh, to Jesus and wanting to share Jesus's love with the world. How could I reconcile, you know, my worldview with obvious evidence like that, you know? Yeah. It's, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I began to change my mind, um, here, here's the thing. Uh, Richard Rohr says this. He's a great guy. If you haven't looked after any of his stuff, uh, Richard Rohr says that uh, extreme changes in conviction can only take place through uh, extreme cases of grief, love, or exposure to other cultures. 
that legitimize yeah. them in your mind. And so when I changed my mind on eschatology, I got got the boot, right? Uh, where my dad and my granddad were the elders. I don't know if you knew that detail. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, they wrote a letter uh, to me withdrawing from me, kind of like the one you see going around Facebook right now. Yeah. And uh, my mom's handwriting was on the envelope that the letter was in. And uh, the they even sent letters to every area congregation warning about me. I, I left the gospel, left the truth, wolf in sheep's clothing, all that. And uh, so what were you supposed to do in that situation? Who do you fellowship? Well, I went to a conference and here's all these people from Pentecostal background, from Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, you know, all these different backgrounds. And they're telling me about their life stories and how they, you know, studied this whole eschatology thing anew. And I'm going, these are people that are driving thousands of miles, yeah, hundreds of miles, flying thousands of miles to attend this conference about the Bible. And they're all so obviously in love with God. Yeah. These people... You know, these people are more Christ-like than the folks that just kicked me out, you know? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so that's when the wheels really started turning and going, oh, man, I have just missed it. I have just missed it so much, you know? Well, I think it's easy for us to miss it whenever we're in the midst of that certainty, whenever we are holding on to that certainty and we have it all figured out. And in our own minds, we're, we're infallible. Like, we have the answers because we've inherited these answers from other people. You know, these these other men and women who are smarter and more intelligent than we are, they've given us these answers. And we oftentimes just we don't even question it. We don't yeah. investigate it any further. We just accept it because these are people we love. These are people that love us or they're supposed to love us. And, you know, even in what you experienced, I can understand where your dad and your grandpa may have been coming from, you know, yeah, in, in, yeah, in their sure. mind and from their perspective. They're showing you love, you know, they're trying to show you that love. And that's that's such a foreign concept to so many people that didn't grow up with this. And they may be thinking, well, that's just crazy talk. And I'm, I'm inclined to agree with them now at this point. Yeah, that is crazy talk. But the whole reason why they reacted the way they did. And from their perspective, it's love is because they were programmed to think that that was in a belief that they inherited as an expression of love. Exactly. And you know, the other day somebody was commenting and you go back and forth with this particular dude all the time. And, uh, (laughs) there's too many to count now. He's, he's especially uh, caustic, but one of the things that he said was you're trying to write me out of the book of life. You know, you're over here condemning me and you're getting on to me for condemning you and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, dude, what you don't understand is I didn't say this exactly, but you know, what you don't understand is, I don't think you're out of the book of life. I think you're totally sincere and love God. I just think you're wrong. Just because I think you're wrong doesn't mean I think you're not going to heaven, you know? Yeah. Uh, And that's what I had to come to understand about my family eventually was that they weren't being, to them, they weren't being hateful or rude or unloving. They were doing what the Bible had directed them to do, you know, from their perspective of it. Yeah. And so in that way, I totally forgive them, which is why I've turned up the heat in the last few yeah. months. Yeah. Because now I'm like, if there's any inch of doubt in any of their minds or in anybody's minds from people from church camp, people from youth groups, then what I want to do is try to put out what I see to be good answers to some of these questions, you know? Well, and these are questions that people struggle with and you've written to the effect of, of several different things that I have questioned that I've wondered about and that I've wrestled with in the past. And I appreciate the succinctness that you give and the clarity that you provide in your writing. Dude, you, you have a real gift for it. Oh, thank you. And, oh, you really do. But one of the things that 
that is really interesting to me is just seeing how, like you said, you've turned up the heat in the past few months. And it's, it's almost like whenever you're going through this process, like I was, I know for myself, whenever I first started to think about things and change on things and, you know, for you, that first domino that fell was eschatology. You know, for me, it was, it was kind of a two dominoes fell at the same time. It was marriage, divorce, and remarriage is seen through the lens of, you know, a dear friend of mine who was in a really, really bad relationship and a really bad marriage, but also the, the science stuff. And Kevin and I did a whole series on that. And I I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody. I didn't feel like I had really anyone I could go to. I didn't even want to talk to my wife about it. And dude, my wife and I talk about everything. Like there is nothing that we can't talk about. We can be completely open with each other and we are now, but that's one area that I didn't want to go to her with is because I didn't want to freak her out. I didn't want her to, th- to worry and lay awake at night thinking, oh, my husband, he's going down this, this dangerous path and he's going to be this godless reprobate because he's thinking these thoughts about, you know, the hair or women wearing pants or the communion or whatever else it might be. Yeah, I didn't want to freak her out. So I kind of, I kept everything really close to the vest for a long time. And it's really only been through this podcast that I've been way more open about this paradigm shift that I've experienced. So to that end, and with all that being said, with you just turning up the heat these last few months, you really, at least I don't see it in your writings. You really weren't as open about a lot of, a lot of this stuff in your writings as you have been recently. Did well, you keep a lot of that to yourself out of, you just didn't want to really stir the waters or, or you know, what was it that, what was it that kept you from being, I'm, I'm trying to think of how I want to say this without it sounding like I'm being insulting, but I'm just going to say it, you know, you know where I'm coming from. Sure. What, what was it that kept you from being more open about all this before? Were you afraid or was it something else? Okay. So there's probably three or four factors that I'll go through a quick point for with you. Uh, one is mental health. Um, I didn't realize this. I did terrible in college. I got out of high school, uh, made like a 29 on my ACT the first time I took it and had like, okay, a good enough grade point average for somebody who played sports and like did FFA stuff all the time. (laughs) But uh, in college, I just did awful. And the reason was, is because, I was going through a lot of these changes even then. Looking back on it, it's, it's easy to see. And uh, I, uh, I was, well, I actually got diagnosed with severe clinical depression. Um, oh, snap, dude. Yeah, a couple of years ago. And so uh, I can see that now through a lot of my, you know, young adult life. That's what I was struggling through. And um, it was not been until till very recently that I've, I don't feel that way anymore. I mean, I just feel so liberated uh, nowadays. And that change happened, I guess, about last midsummer or so is when I started really feeling more comfortable in my own skin. And that allowed me to start to reexamine these issues a little bit more closely and try to put some language to them and things like that. Um, But then in the fall, I don't know if you know this or not, but the country was pretty divided over politics. I don't know. Just a little. Yeah, just a little. (laughs) Well, I was obviously conflicted because, you know, I, that's a whole nother podcast, but anyways, I was obviously conflicted about a lot of that and I didn't appreciate some of the uh, calls to violence from some of my preterist church of Christ friends. Yeah. And they were the ones that I was 
tethered to, and I'll talk about what that means in a second, that didn't really allow me to go out as far as I really was internally, you know, outwardly. Yeah. So yeah. when that happened and I saw the direction that they were going, basically calling to form almost a Christian militia, basically, uh, I stood up and was like, no, no more of this. I can't, I can't deal with this. You know, I'm, I'm gone basically. And, uh, so there was a break there. Well, that break allowed me to be more open with my, uh, words, you know, cause what are they going to do? Double disfellowship me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I, uh, <laughs> so I started making posts that were more grace centered and love centered and, uh, really just getting after it with, uh, coming out with a lot of this, but here's the thing. It was all stuff that I preached at church at my congregation already. And so they weren't surprised by any of it. So they're all, you know, they were all cool with it. So I had a permission from them on that end, but I knew what would happen if I took a step out and did that. And you're seeing the product of that in my Facebook comments. I mean, people are very upset with me. <laughs> yes, they are. And man, that, that it, it's, it's so maddening in so many ways, but, yeah. but I get it because I mean, I used to be that guy. You yeah. know, I, I look at some of the comments that are sent your way and I can appreciate the tone that so many people do take in their discourse with you. Yeah. There are a lot of people that they do disagree, but they disagree agreeably. And yes. it, it may get a little heated at times, but you can tell these are people that know you and they know who you are. They know the kind of yeah. person you are. They know what kind of cloth you're cut from. And they're not just lambasting you and bashing you. They're disagreeing with you. And and if you don't understand that there may be a connection there, it can be really easy to read into some of that. But then there sure. are others that are just vicious. Oh, yeah. And I can't help but think to myself, if your goal is to persuade someone to your way of thinking, then how effectively do you think this strategy is going to work? You know, right. if, if I want to persuade you, Daniel Rogers, to not believe in eschatology anymore, what good is or realize eschatology? Because I can't just say eschatology, but realize eschatology. What good is it going to be for me to say, you big buffoon, you yeah. don't know what you're talking about. You've obviously never read the Bible. If you hold to this idea, right. I can't believe you would ever think this. You need to, you know, start studying. You need to sit down and shut up and open your ears and close your mouth and start listening to people that know better and need to start studying. Yeah, That's not going to persuade anybody. Y'all think he's being vicious, but he's literally quoting some of these guys. That's what they say. Sit down, shut up. You're too young, all this kind of stuff. It's really quite uh, sad, but kind of funny. Man, um, it's well, it's here, just – oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. well, here's here's one thing I want to elaborate on, and this, this has a lot to do with paradigm shifts, and it's who you're tethered to. So what's kind of interesting is if my congregation, my home congregation, instead of disfellowshipping me or kicking me out, would have been like, well, Daniel, we don't want you to be the preacher anymore. Um, but we want you to stay around, you know, lead prayers every now and then we'll have studies with you and things like that. I would have never changed on any of these issues. Yeah. Most likely I'll, because who you're tethered to allows you to only travel so far away from them, you know? Um, yeah. and so when you break those bonds, then you're free to explore more. And so sometimes if you are, unfortunately, sometimes if you're trying to grow, you have to evaluate the people in your life and be like, who's holding me back in a negative way? You know, who's not encouraging me to, to, to progress in this way. And, and sometimes you have to make a difficult decision. You know, am I willing to follow where this is leading and basically break this 
leash between us? Or am I okay with sitting where I'm at and keeping this relationship, even if it's not really where I'm supposed to be, you know, dude, that's wow. You, Oh, you just kind of blew my mind a little bit because you just pretty much summarized the last year for my wife and I, Oh yeah, dude. No. And, and I love the way you put that in being tethered to somebody or tethered to a group because I haven't thought about in those terms, but man, that's a perfect way to describe it because yeah, you're, you can only go so far like on like a dog on a leash, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I've not, I've been vocal and I've let people know everyone that listens to this podcast and knows my background that, you know, I was raised one this Pentecostal and that my wife and I have been a part of the one cup branch of the churches of Christ for you know, 15 years now. Well, I haven't gone into this on the podcast yet, so we'll just go ahead and make this a world premiere of this information. We uh, left that particular group at the first of the year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was after a lot of thought, a lot of conversations, a lot of study, a lot of prayer, you know, late night conversations into the wee hours of the morning, you know, working through all of this. And what you just said, if your church would have said, you know, we don't want you to be our preacher anymore, but we want you to stick around. We want to study with you. You know, you lead a song, lead a prayer, maybe wait the table that you would have never left. You may not have ever gone through that, that paradigm shift that you experienced. And that's, you're describing pretty much what happened to me in that sense. You know, I had been working through so much of this for so long and for so many years and in our home congregation, when Kevin and I started this podcast, we were about seven or eight episodes into it. And I was pulled to the side by the the main preacher there who had a lot of concern about it. And we had a conversation one Wednesday night after church for about three hours. And it seemed like it was good. And basically he told me kind of the same thing you just said, you know, in that hypothetical, it was, you know, I, I think we're I'm just going to take care of the teaching for now because he and I would go back and forth on the teaching rotation. He said, but, you know, we'll still call on you to lead songs or to do this or do that. And we stayed and I wanted to study this more. I wanted to look into it more, but it never really went beyond that. Like there never really was any further pursuit of a conversation about any of these things to try to come to some sort of consensus or better understanding of one another. And eventually it went from, you know, no longer teaching, but still leading a prayer, waiting the table. Now I'm not waiting the table anymore. And then after another few months, I'm not being called on the lead prayers. And then after another few months, I'm not being called on the lead songs. And it's, and it's not a matter of not being called on to participate. That's not the issue. It's not like, well, I need to get up here and do my part and I'm not able to do what I want to do. So I'm going to leave. It's not that at all. Whenever you're a part of a family and your function within that family is to do X, Y, Z. And then you're no longer called on to do X, Y, Z. It's like, well, am I even a member of the family anymore? Well, and that's the thing. We tie participation in worship with, yeah, uh, with um, fellowship in the community. Exactly. And so by not being allowed, see, it's not just that it's your choice to not preach or not uh, teach or not to lead a song, but if you're not allowed to, it really, what it really means is well, you're not really part of this family. You're just sitting in a pew, you know, and thanks for your contribution check, by the way, we appreciate that. You know, exactly. Thank, well, and, thank you, Dr. Grant. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. And, you know, I didn't even disagree with the idea of being pulled off the teaching rotation because right. yeah, I'm, my paradigm was shifting to the point where so many of the doctrinal conclusions that were sacrosanct, you know, I was like, you know what, I can understand this and, and I can understand and even agree with it as a point of conviction. 
but it's not, it's not a conviction that I share as strongly as some others. I still see, and even now, I still see the theological value in the argument that's made for one loaf and one cup on the table in a literal sense. I can see that, but where my egregious sin was in their eyes was no longer seeing that as a salvation issue. If, if right. you observe the Lord's Supper in a different way, then that's not going to condemn your soul forever. And that was problematic. And some of the other changes in opinions that had come about from that shift in conviction, those were the things that sort of pulled me out of the pulpit. So that makes sense to me because I'm not going to be getting up there and putting out the message that they approve of. So it does make sense for me to no longer teach. That's fine. But not being a functional part of the family anymore within that particular subculture, right. it really did hurt a little bit. Yeah, for sure, man. For sure, and, it does. And in going through that, like I'm sitting here thinking about that, and then I think about you and what you went through, where it's your own members of your family right. that are going full out and disfellowshipping you, man. It's I'm convinced you're a better man than I am because I don't think I could be as gracious as you've been. Oh uh, no, no, I haven't been as gracious as I should be. I'm still, still uh, maturing towards that goal. So, <laughs> hey, we're we're exploring faith and we're still trying to pursue grace. Not only God's grace, but pursue our own growth in grace and being able yeah. to be more gracious. That's right. So, so this thought process kind of stayed a secret for a while with you because of who you were tethered to. Yeah, and, yeah. In a sense, you know, we had our conversations behind closed doors. Uh, but there, there wasn't, let, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. So there's a guy that I know and he's a great, he's a great man. He loves God and he's always posting articles and videos and things like that. But he comes from a more, more Baptist background, we'll say. And, uh, he was asked to speak at a, common uh, conference that I participated in for several years in a row. But the goal at that conference was to have a debate on baptism and to convince him to be baptized. Oh, it was kind of a bait and switch. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. Well, he knew, he knew it going in, but in, he ended up not, not being able to go <laughs> like they were. Oh. Like, uh, <laughs> it was unfortunate, like really bad storms or something to cancel the, cancel the flight. But anyways, uh, that, I just, I voiced my disagreement with that. I was like, he doesn't need to be rebaptized. He doesn't need it. You know, all this sort of stuff. And yeah. so that was sort of the beginning of the end of that being tethered, but I was still allowed to stay around because, you know, I was a faithful church of Christ preacher, right. With the right yeah. name and acapella music and five acts of worship and all that kind of thing. So that was sort of the beginning of the end there, but you know, it's, uh, it is true. Who you're tethered to is basically how much you're allowed to, you know, go outside of that range. Uh, and that's what we call fellowship issues and non-fellowship issues, right? Or salvation issues. Absolutely. Whatever was it was, it was uh, is within the radius of that leash is the fellowship issue. Well, in, in my mind, it seems like if we're really going to be fair-minded, if we're really going to exhibit that Berean spirit and that Berean attitude, then we would do well to explore and test all things, not just those things within our circle, but test those so-called dangerous doctrines and dangerous positions. Because 
and this is something that I was thinking about not too long ago. We, we have these terms that are bandied about and thrown around that you have these books. Well, these are dangerous books over here, but these books over here, these are safe. And I'm well, what makes a book a dangerous book? Right. You know, and if it's, it's a dangerous book, theologically speaking, if it flies in the face of your traditional milieu, your traditional interpretive lens. Well, then it's a, it's a danger because then it threatens the status quo that you have accepted (laughs) as a status quo. Listen, man, I got to just drop this in there about dangerous books. There's a lot of like a commotion going on on Facebook right now about Dr. Seuss, you know, (laughs) you know, what's funny is half the people I see posting about Dr. Seuss, you know, would cancel cultured Harry Potter and cancel cultured. uh, Oh, what was it? Uh, It was there Pokemon and also only allow certain books within their church libraries because other books are dangerous. And so it's just so ironic seeing everybody upset about Dr. Seuss when these are the people I've grown up with my whole life who didn't want people playing Pokemon or playing Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, stuff oh, yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. And as an avowed nerd who loves Dungeons and Dragons and who, yeah. and I'm going to out myself Uh-oh. here and we may lose half our listeners, but Uh-oh. I was once, there's a, there's a really big nerd game that's been around since 93 called Magic the Gathering. And I was part of a semi-pro Magic the Gathering team in my high school years. We all drove right. all over Texas and the Southwest playing it. And, and people would freak out over that. But I mean, I can even do you one better. I remember whenever Focus on the Family was wanting to boycott Disney and they were canceling Disney oh, because yeah. of things that Disney was involved in. So, yeah, it is ironic that that's the case. Right. But but we do. We get all up in arms about cancel culture. But then we, you know, cancel each other over doctrinal disagreements. We, yes. we cancel vast swaths of people. I mean. Whenever I, I don't remember if it was you or if it was someone else that posted that Christians invented cancel culture. And oh, yeah. we really have, because within the churches of Christ, we will cancel the Baptists, we will cancel the Methodists, we will cancel assemblies of God, the Pentecostals. The Pentecostals will cancel the Baptists because they're Calvinists. The Baptists will cancel anyone who's Arminian. You know, the it, it's it's it gets ridiculous. And well, here's here's the thing about cancel culture. Cancel culture and the Church of Christ is absolutely necessary because if you are allowed to objectively read material written by someone other than a member of the church of Christ, you might just see somebody making sense yeah, or showing love or being Christ-like. And if you see that, that starts to demolish this whole structure that's been built that everybody within this building is, uh, is right and is good and is moral. And everybody else is just heathens and drunkards and all this kind of stuff, you know. And so when you start realizing that every single per- that not every single person outside of the Church of Christ, you know, isn't a uh, drunkard or a fornicator or something like that, you start to realize, wow, these are like moral, good people that love God and love their neighbor. And why have we been told they're these like weird devil-looking creatures running around out there? You know. Yeah, and whenever you're told that, you believe it whenever you don't have any other point of reference or frame of reference to go by, you don't have any other experience with these kind of people. And so that in in a way that poisons the well, and whenever you begin to interact with these people, you don't, you're really guarded whenever you start to interact with these people, you don't really give them the benefit of the doubt and let them prove themselves to either be a good person or a wicked person, because I've met plenty of good people. I've, I've got a good friend of mine. He's a colleague who practices in California, he's an atheist. He's one of the kindest, most loving people you'll ever meet. And then some of the so-called Christians that I've known in my life have been some of the most vicious, mean-spirited people I've ever known. 
So we can't let that preconception color our viewpoint of others, because if we do, well, that's going to introduce a prejudice in how we interact with others. And to me, that, that entire mentality of cancel culture, that's the biggest issue that I have with that paradigm that I left behind. Yes. That hermeneutic that I left behind, because that lens through which scripture was viewed lended itself very well to canceling out anyone that I disagreed with. In your mind, that previous hermeneutic that you held to or that perspective, what do you think was the most problematic aspect of, of that viewpoint that you used to espouse? Well, the most problematic aspect is there's the assumption that everything you believe is right and everybody in the previous generations have figured it out. And that's why so many people leave the church. I don't just mean leave the church of Christ, leave Christianity. Yeah. Um, because kids go to college to get more knowledge. Okay. A little <laughs> child nursery rhyme jumped in my head. Okay. When kids go to college, they're members of the church and they go to a secular school and they begin to interact with people who ask questions that they can't give good answers to yeah. instead of changing their perspective of, okay, it might not be just the church of Christ. Because they've been taught this is the only way to read the Bible and any other way is wrong and isn't true to the text, and they're given systems of interpretation that always produce the same results, what happens when they're shown different results is they throw out the Bible altogether, and they throw out Christianity altogether, and they just leave the church because, uh, because they learn that they weren't right, but they were taught that the position that they were given was the only possible one, which means it must not be useful for anything at all, right? The entire Bible must be wrong if I'm wrong about this one thing, right? Yeah, exactly. So they, so they throw out the whole thing. So that was probably the most troubling thing is the assumption that everything that we knew and believed in was correct, which I love, 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 love Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And if anybody says that they know anything, they've not yet known as they ought to know. And he wasn't talking about Jew, Gentile, cleanliness, unclean, you know, whatever rituals. He was talking about monotheism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty fundamental aspect of Christianity is monotheism. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, that's something that we, we look at now and we laugh about. Right. But some of these, some of these differences that we have, are really just as laughable if we really examine them in light of that lens of love. Yeah. So here's, here's another paradigm shift that happened with me. Uh, so I had already reached sort of the mental conclusion that instrumental music isn't going to send someone to hell. I thought, I don't know if that's what the new Testament teaches. I don't think, I don't know if it's from the heart or whatever. Um, but I don't think it's going to send somebody to hell. Well, I did one of those, uh, you come with me to church and I'll go with you to you at church sort of situations, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I actually went with them and it wasn't just a ploy to get them to come with me. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Well, I went with them and they had a band, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, here we go. This is classic big rock band. This is going to be rock music and just ungodly. And now I'm going to know why it, it, we didn't use instrumental music, even though it might not be a soul condemning issue. I'm about to see it here. This is exactly what I was warned about. And it was the most honest and sincere worship I had heard offered up in a long time. Yeah. Because even with acapella music, if you were sitting on my row uh, with, my, with some people that I knew my, of, in my family, every note was critiqued. 
and all that's that oh not this song leader oh man he's gonna sing that song that sucks it was all just so in many many now there was some legitimate worship offered but a lot of it was fake and so so superficial but this band that i listened to at my friend's church it was so sincere and thoughtful and humble and honest nobody was up there trying to draw attention to themselves and i'm sitting there in the pew going what in the world? Well, actually, they didn't have pews. They had those ungodly fold-out chairs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not like not like they use in the first century with the pews, you know. <laughs> yeah, we all and had so, pews then. Yeah, and I'm sitting there just listening, going, "Wow, this is not at all what I expected," you know. Yeah, and it blew my mind. It really did, and I'm still shocked to this day that that happened. <laughs> but it, it's we just don't have any exposure to any alternative views or perspectives. We, we're in our little box and nothing that goes into that box or fits into that box. We just reject as being bad. Well, and it's because exposure is, is, is viewed as being tantamount to sin. If you go and you do experience worship with another group or another set of people who may hold a different set of doctrinal beliefs that you do, well, you've sinned. You've gone and you've engaged in a different set of rituals predicated on a different mindset or mentality that drives that ritualistic expression of worship. And in doing so, you have erred egregiously. And yes. and, and that entire mentality, it's okay. Well, if that's the case, well, what is it about that that is sinful? And, and I really like this article that you wrote about convictions and opinions, because that to me is is the biggest issue. You know, I have changed my opinion on so many different doctrinal issues, and it wasn't just because I want to do whatever I want to do, even though that's what some people are saying. Well, Lee just wants to justify sin, and Lee just wants to do whatever he wants, and Lee wants to do this or that, or he's just tired of doing this, and he just doesn't care about truth. You know, it's not that at all. Above all else, I want to pursue truth, and I want to pursue truth in a manner that honors the source of that truth. And whenever we look at the scriptures and we study the Bible, the fact that we have this book that's, you know, close to 2000 years old is what about 1700 years old or so. The canon that Protestants have is what somewhere in the neighborhood of 450, 500 years old. You know, the fact that we have this book in front of us and we're all reading from the same thing, but so many of us are finding wildly different conclusions you know, that, that seems to tell me that maybe we're not approaching the book maybe in the way that we ought to. If we have different opinions about what this means and that means and that means and that means, maybe there's something awry with that interpretive strategy. But but instead of focusing on the differences, because that's what we seem to do, what are the similarities that we have? Do right. you love Jesus? Do you recognize Jesus as the best of heaven, as the only begotten son of God, as the word of God incarnate? Do we see Jesus as fully human yet still fully divine? Do we see him representing the fullness of God and who God reveals himself to be? Do we love him? Do we love God? And do we pledge our fidelity unto him by devoting our lives to serving him and emulating him and trying to be more like him? And do we express that ultimately in showing love to our neighbor and in showing care and compassion to our neighbor, but not just our neighbor, not just those people that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis, those people that we invite over for our barbecues, those people we worship with at church or that we have podcasts with, 
do we extend that same love to our enemies? Those people that castigate us, those people that call us wet behind the ears and a son of perdition, those people that call us, you know, a wild flaming liberal who doesn't care about truth anymore. Someone who's been led astray by the wily words of one Kevin Pendergrass. And in my case, you know, do we still extend that love and that grace yeah. to those people? Yes. And yeah. if that's, if, if we all hold that in common, then what's the issue with all of these other things? Why are we elevating these other things to the point of, of being a fellowship issue? Musical instruments or the cup, right? And, you know, I can think about the cup and whenever I, I think about using the loaf and using the cup, I had a discussion with someone not long ago and we were talking about this idea you know, and it was a good conversation. It never got bad. It did get heated, but it never got bad. It was passionate. Heated is even too strong of a word because everything was said in love. But the question or the statement that was made was, is, well, if we just read the Bible and do what the Bible says, well, then we're not going to have any issues. And my reply was, is nobody does that. Nobody just reads the Bible and does what it says. And I said, we don't do that. Like even in the one cup church, we don't do that. And as an example, we say that we need to take the loaf and take the cup because that's what Jesus did. He took the loaf and he took one cup. And because that's what he did, that's what we need to do. I said, but we don't meet in an upper room like they did. We don't observe it in the, in terms of a meal like they did. We don't recline like they did. You know, I may have already said this. We don't observe it in the evening like they did. We don't wash feet before or afterward like they did. We don't go out and sing a hymn like they did. And Dr. Dallas Burdett, he speaks of some of those issues in some of his writings and some of his books. <laughs> yeah. I said, we don't do any of those things. Jesus did those things. Those things were done, but we don't do those things. We're arbitrary and we're inconsistent. We pick and we choose what we're going to follow. And to the greater point I was getting at is, is, if it was a soul saving or soul condemning issue for one to use one loaf and one cup in the Lord's Supper, if God wanted to make absolutely sure that that was crystal clear, then why don't we see them coming out and saying that whenever they wrote what they wrote? And now you're getting into one of my biggest changes in viewing the New Testament. And it all comes down to one important question Was Beethoven right? <laughs> You're going to have to explain that to me. Was Beethoven right? What does that mean? Exactly. What does that mean? And so when we ask the question, does the New Testament authorize X or X and New Testament worship? It sounds just about to me like, is was Beethoven right? Or is CCR orange? <laughs> <laughs> because when you start looking at it, what we've basically done is we've argued for a patternistic worship service modeled after like old testament worship but that doesn't exist in the new testament we have invented this thing called a worship service with ritualistic acts that we go through and so one of my biggest shifts was realizing that the new covenant isn't just like a reskinned version of the old covenant it's a it's a transformation it's a complete transformation instead of a temple we are the temple Instead of a worship service that you go to on the Sabbath day or on a feast day, you are the worship service, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Everything yeah. you do in word or deed is to be done in the name of the Lord. You are a spiritual priest offering up spiritual sacrifices continually because you never leave the holy place if you're in Christ. And that's what it means to pray without ceasing. We miss that. We mess that up. We just think that means pray a lot. No, he didn't say pray a lot. He said, <laughs> he said pray without ceasing. And you pray without ceasing because you're in constant communication with God 
if you're in Christ. And that transformation there, see, what we, it, it has changed everything for me because what we used to believe was, well, you know, baptism is the new circumcision and Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. And we've just replaced the old covenant with new, with the new. But what Paul urges over and over again is, guys, the old covenant cannot produce life because it's dependent upon you being perfect, you know? Yeah. And so why have we replaced it? Why, why have we basically just uh, reskinned it and, and marketed it as a new covenant? It's even more, it's even more strict than the old covenant was. Because at least in the old covenant, if your ox was stuck in a ditch, you could stop on the Sabbath day and pick it up. In the new covenant, if you miss three or four Sundays, a letter gets sent out all over Facebook about what you've done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in in what you just said about being a reskin version of the old covenant in the minds of so many, it reminds me of what Paul told the church in Galatia there in Galatians 6. You know, he's speaking of these Judaizing teachers, but the the same thing can be said now whenever we elevate this idea or we replace being transformed and being renewed and being that living sacrifice. Whenever we replace that with a worship service with five acts of worship, we really have fallen from grace. We're really trying to be justified by our ability to hold to a set of laws or a set or a, a law system. And we seek to be justified by that law system that we have arbitrarily created with the one loaf and the one cup and the, you know, the acapella singing, which I still think that's valuable. And whenever we talk about the worship service, one thing I want to make clear, whenever we talk about that, we have invented a worship service with five acts of worship. I couldn't agree with you more on that. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that Dallas writes to that in in great degree in a lot of his writings. To those of you that are listening, if you've never heard of Dallas Burdett, he is an eminent scholar. He is well-versed in ancient languages, and he has written a tremendous body of work. And Daniel has executed a labor of love in bringing his writings to the masses on a uh, on his website and we'll be linking that website into our show notes as well and i encourage everyone to check out those works they will bless you and they will help you tremendously yeah it's uh, it's freedominchrist.net if you want to go look it up look it up thank you freedominchrist.net i didn't say it because i couldn't remember if it was dot com or dot net so (laughs) thank you for picking up what i was putting down there but when we talk about that worship service i don't want anyone to misunderstand there is value in that because that's a means by which we can enter into community. It's a very good thing. It's a wonderful thing. I know it's a wonderful blessing to me of having this worship service that is not necessarily biblical, but contains some biblical principles within it. It's an opportunity to engage in community. So often people don't use it for that, but it gives us an opportunity to come together. It's a good thing. But brother, I I think you're exactly right about saying that this is an invention that we have created. Well, Christians are going to naturally get together. See, not not attending the assembly on Sunday morning is not a uh, it's not a sin because there's some legalistic requirement to attend the services on Sunday morning. Missing a service would would be a sin if uh, you know. Like, uh, because it's like an indication that your entire life isn't bent on, you know, being with other Christians and lifting each other up and following God. Like, and I'm not saying that every time you miss a service is a sin. I'm saying it can become a sin 
because you're not wanting to lift up your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's not a legalistic requirement, but something that should be the natural product of being a Jesus follower. You should yeah. want to get together daily, you know? It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and a good friend of mine, he's my jujitsu coach. He and I have been getting together in the mornings and we've been working out and lifting weights together. We did not get together this morning before church because it's daylight savings time at the moment of this recording. And that would have meant one fewer hour that I got to sleep. So we didn't do that. But we have some really good Bible conversations, some really good spiritual conversations. We talk about the struggles that we face. And it just occurred to me a couple of weeks ago, I was like, man, this is, this is essentially, this is church. We're having fellowship with one another. We're encouraging one another. We're building one another up here. Exactly. And, I mean, this podcast is, is kind of that way too, dude. You're building me up. I hope I'm building you up and I'm not oh, dragging sure. you down. I mean, it's, oh. it, it's an exercise in that. It's, it's representative and reflective of what Jesus followers ought to be doing for one another. And the worship service isn't the end all be all to that. And so often we view it as that thing. And when we make it into a legalistic requirement, we are actually taking away from the power that it has. Yes. Um, I'm reminded of what Jesus said. He said that man was not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. Yes. And you should take that sentence as a, just a practice and write down all the things you hold near and dear and just replace Sabbath with that. Man was not made for baptism, but baptism for man. Whoa, doesn't that just mess things up? It does. <laughs> it's it's a mind-blowing paradigm shift, and yeah. it's one that necessitates those changes in convictions. Your your convictions can't help but change whenever you begin to look at things through that renewed creative viewpoint of being renewed in Christ and always, like you like you just said a few minutes ago, always being in that most holy place. Yes. But but it that really does change everything that lends itself to a truly transformative experience. And there are people that they just don't, they just don't get it. They just don't understand it because they either haven't been challenged or they haven't had those discussions with other people, or maybe their world has been very, very small. And that, that doesn't mean that they are less than that doesn't mean that they are, that they are any less of a Christian than you are or that I am. They are followers of Jesus who are operating within the realm of their own sincerity just as much as you are and just as much as I am. Exactly. And I, and I believe that God's grace can cover them as well. I certainly hope it will. I know that oh, for sure. Whenever no folks I know whenever folks get nasty and whenever folks get vitriolic and they really begin to spew venom, that's when I start to worry. You know, the doctrinal precision and all that doesn't worry me nearly as much as the way we engage with our brothers and sisters in Christ, even those of other fellowships and other um, convictions than what we are. Whenever people begin to get mean and mean spirited, that's whenever I begin to worry. And that's where I usually mess up and I begin to get a little hostile myself. And I, I've told Kevin this, we I've mentioned this in private conversations with him I don't mind if someone comes after me. It doesn't really bother me all that much, you know, because I know who I am. I know where I stand. I know what I stand for. I don't like being misrepresented or having my words misrepresented. And I really don't like it when my friends are attacked. When my, <laughs> well, friend, it, man. When my friends are attacked, I, I tend to. I tend to roll up my sleeves and try to do a little verbal jujitsu with them or that that's when I'm ready to hanker for a fight. That's when I have to step away. And I yeah. love your page. 
I love your writing. I love everything you're putting out there, but there are times brother where I have to read it and then I have to put it away for 12 hours because I know I am not going to be very Christ-like if I keep engaging with some of the folks that <laughs> I've been involved with. But um, listen, listen, that's why you should subscribe to my blog. That way they go straight to your email and you don't have to see all those comments. <laughs> I think I need to do that, brother. I think I need to. In fact, I know I need to. I love what you're writing. Well, well, I, I appreciate it, man. And listen, just I don't want anyone to be I don't want anyone to be uh, confused or to be concerned at all. We are not. Uh, condemning anybody from the church of Christ or from a more conservative or a more liberal place in women. We are now because we are all at the end of the day, tardy when it comes to being like Christ. Yes. We're all a little late. And so we have to just be willing to critique without condemning. And I think that's where I went wrong in my earlier years was I couldn't help but condemn while I critiqued. And, yes. uh, we have to learn to separate the two and not feel attacked when people disagree with us. That's another major thing as well, but Absolutely. that's a lesson I still have not learned. And I ask for your patience in learning it. <laughs> well, and I do as well. Lord knows I need patience. Lord knows I need to grow in that. And hopefully he won't send me a trial to help me grow in that as the old saying often goes. Well, before we wrap this up, brother, I'm going to ask you just real quick what other advice, that advice you just gave is really good, good advice. What other advice would you give to those people that are traveling down this same road that you have gone down and you're still traveling down of sort of deconstructing and then rebuilding and reconstructing your faith through a different paradigm? This path that Kevin has walked, that I have walked, and that so many that have reached out to us on this podcast that are our listeners have, have reached out to us with, with, with gratitude for what we're doing. What advice would you give them moving forward to help um, inoculate them against discouragement? My advice is you are exactly where you need to be right now. You are not a minute late. You're like Gandalf. You're not a minute late. You're not a minute early. You're exactly where you need to be. And so you need to be super patient with yourself and give yourself the benefit of the doubt. And listen to me. And this is coming from somebody who is not going to listen to this advice at all. Okay. So you listen to me. Um, <laughs> you do not need to solve all the world's problems this afternoon. Give yourself time. <laughs> You'll get there. Okay. Uh, just be patient with yourself and, and, and be forgiving and loving towards yourself as you are towards others. Amen, brother. Well, do you have anything else that you want to say? Anything else you want to drop? Any projects you're working on? You just released a, uh, a, uh, ebook not too long ago that people can acquire. And yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit about that before we wrap this up? Yes, I had uh, somebody on YouTube commented and they said, wow, you are the smartest person I've ever listened to. <laughs> no, <okay. laughs> um, uh, they left a comment and they're asking uh, if I had any advice on how to study the Bible. And so I started writing and I ended up with about an hour's worth of material. Uh, and so it's about an hour read. It's called How to Study the Bible, a one hour introduction for beginners. And what I basically do is just go through and talk about what resources to get, um, what resources you need, because nobody studies the Bible by itself. Um, even if you think you do, you still have years of preaching that you listen to that influence it. Um, but I tell you what resource to get. And I also walk you through questions to ask when you're approaching any passage to kind of just give you a list of questions to run through to know how to break down that text. So that's basically all it is. And it's free, by the way. 
It's yeah, free. it's free. Yeah, you're not trying to make money off of Jesus, so that's cool. I appreciate that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, well, <laughs> now to be fair, to be fair, there's a space and it says free, or you can put in what you think it's worth. So you know, yes, pay what you will, make a donation. I know you would appreciate that. And dude, your work is top notch. I appreciate your articles. I appreciate the work you put into it, man. It's, it's really good. So to all of our listeners, we encourage you to check out Daniel's stuff. We're going to have uh, links posted in our show notes. I'll make sure Daniel sends me those links so I type it appropriately. Um, thank you all for listening. Kevin, I miss you. We love you. We're ready to have you back, brother. I'm looking forward to you returning and being with us again, and I know that day will come. Uh, to all of our listeners, thank you all so much. We love all of you. Our audience is growing just a little every day. We're digging it. We like it. It's good times. Uh, share this podcast with your friends, share it with your neighbors, share it with your family, your enemies, even share it with them because they need Jesus too. Um, give us a like on Facebook, follow us, reach out to us. If you have any questions or concerns or suggestions for the podcast, um, you can shoot us an email at the email that's in the show notes um, and give us that five-star review. We thank you all very much and we'll see you all again soon.